He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, January 27, 2024. Some justice in this world. $83.3 million against Donald Trump. A New York City federal court. His ongoing defamation of Eugene Carroll. What a great episode 193 I have for you. John Walsh, who seems destined to be Denver's next DA. You will find out why as you listen to him in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Troubadour Dave Gunders, the perfect song for the day that Donald Trump gets his comeuppance. Tart and Feathered. How are you, Dave Gunders? Hi, Craig. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. Well, I know you're having a good week because I taught you how to use those 15 or 30 second forward and backward button on your phone. What a discovery for you. I did I did use it, um, and I did try speeding up to 1.2. What? And it was no good. I went back to 1. <laughs> I like listening to you in, 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 in you know normal, natural speed. It's like hard liquor. You have to get used to it. Maybe, maybe true. You know what I'm excited about? John Walsh, this interview, just to have you listen to it, because he's a big timer. Barack Obama is appointee as U.S. attorney. And you know who he worked with as a young prosecutor in the U.S. attorney's office in L.A.? In L.A.? I wouldn't know. Adam Schiff. Oh, okay. Adam Schiff. And then he worked with Preet Bharara and uh, all these big names, Joyce fans. Well, you don't watch all the shows I do, but did you follow this E. Jean Carroll case? Do you understand what happened? Fortunately, our walks have informed me. Okay. No, today you gave me some good lowdown on it. All right, E. Jean Carroll. Yes. She was a fairly attractive woman who knew Donald Trump a bit. They met at the front door of Bergdorf Goodman and talked, uh, oh, I'm shopping for uh, a gift for my wife. Well, I'll help you. And next thing you know, he has her pushed up against a dressing room wall and he's mauling her. And he's putting himself inside of her. Now, she thinks it was his penis, but the jury found that it was at least his finger. <laughs> okay? And given what Stormy Daniels talked about, it's hard to tell the difference. <laughs> okay. Okay, but in any event, that was decided to be true by a jury, and he decided to defend by sending his lawyers, contradicting her and saying, you waited a long time, but she had outcry witnesses, friends she had told, and they found that this had happened and that Trump was defaming her, and they awarded $5 million. Most people would shut up at that point, right? Yeah. But then Trump immediately said, it's all bullshit, she's a liar, she made it up, and just kept going like an incorrigible child. So the issue became what should happen, and he's been hoisted on his own petard because he swore... I am so rich, defending himself on the AG's lawsuit that he defrauded the banks by inflating his wealth. 
So he gave a statement under oath that they used that he's got four hundred million in cash and he's worth fifteen billion dollars. So they played that and said, Hey, what's it gonna take to affect him? And the jury said, eighty-three point three million dollars. I don't know how they do it and do it so fast, but civil juries are like that. And as a civil trial lawyer, I'm just kind of excited that I'm in a profession that something like that could happen. Now, will they collect? He's got to post that bond or they can start executing some judgment. It's going to be fascinating. It's like a civil procedure class. I'm sure it hurts. And his lies are working against him this time, right? He was bragging about his wealth. Okay, well, good. It's good to know you have 400 in cash. And who does it really hurt? Who do you think is hurt? Because he's a sociopath, narcissist. And, you know, in his own mind, he might have forgotten her because he's done it to so many women. So he thinks it didn't happen if he can't really remember it. But he knows that he did that. It's his modus operandi. Hell, he confessed to Billy Bush. When you're a star, they let you grab them by the... Right. Which is exactly what happened, and nobody talks like that. You and I have been in locker rooms, and we talk rowdy, but nobody talks like that. You know? No. Trump, though, is happy to do it. Right, and before that, he was talking about trying to bet another man's wife. Mm. I went after her like a bitch. I mean, that's his sport. He thinks he's entitled. He hung out with Jeffrey Epstein. He's... He's a sex offender Well, and the nominee of the Republican Party. Right. All at the same time. And an insurrectionist as well. Right. You talk about ridiculous. You know, you talk about a ridiculous verdict. It's ridiculous verdict on the part of the GOP to go with this guy. It's alarming. It's like there's no mind behind the, the, uh, the, the, the Republican Party. There's no central reasoning committee or whatever there might be in a normal, you know, political party, right? That's right. Yeah. No, no, he's appropriated the party. It's it's sad. It's worse than sad. It's really troubling. And uh you know what's now it's what we're facing. Yeah. John Walsh stood up to him. He went, he litigated that Michigan part of the big lie. You know, all that mayhem in Michigan, it took smart lawyers and he was one of them and a team of brilliant uh, attorneys did their part to beat back this attempt to defeat democracy that's ongoing even as we speak. So this John Walsh interview is going to be fantastic after your song. And what great reaction we've had to Ben Micellis and Denver Riggleman. Ben Micellis and his Midas Touch Network just hit 2 million subscribers on YouTube. And speaking of YouTube... Go to the Craig Silverman Show on YouTube, our shorts. We make brilliant shorts. We've got one of Denver Riggleman flying his F-16 doing barrel rolls over Denver. I want you to go there. And on my system, you can just call that out. Hey, YouTube, the Craig Silverman Show, shorts. And then you'll just see them one after the other. It's the highlights of each episode which may include you someday, Troubadour. You know you're the best part of every show. Oh, that's awful nice. Well, that's why I keep coming around, you know. My, every, my day can come. Tell everybody about Tartan Feathered and about your big solo career. Tartan Feathered, that song was born on the back porch with my uh, younger daughter who was in tears, um, having 
been hired verbally uh, from a, a business owner here in town and then you know summarily summarily ignored after that so she didn't she he never called back what when do you you know as far as when she starts how much she's getting paid and the guy just disappeared so i was i was angry and uh, i started just to make her this was an effort to uh you know cheer her up right i was singing some silly words and some funny words that he should be tarred and feathered it became a song it's beautiful, but it stirred an instinct in you that I think is in a lot of men that might have been reflected on the jury today in New York City, which is we are wired to come to the aid of a damsel in distress. Your daughter, who you love so dearly, is being abused, not physically, but just treated like dirt right. by an older rich guy. Yeah. And you're saying, hey, buddy, you can't treat a female like that. And that's what people are saying to Trump. And to get your attention, man, $83.3 million. But here's why I think it really hurts. His heirs. Think about Melania. Thinking, whoa, that's $83.3 million flying out of the Trump family fortune because he needed to put his fingers there, you know? And... Eric and Don Jr. and Tiffany and Ivanka thinking. I mean, how do you face your family? Well, I mean, and then you have Stormy Daniels. You have 26 other women. He's done this with countless females. It's either the immediate grab or the immediate smoochy face. It's just crude. It's sex offender stuff. It's not normal. No, and he deserves it. And yeah, you're right, his heirs, although I think they suffer more from the shame that comes, that falls on the family. And honestly, I, I, I can't imagine being in being a member of his family over the last, you know, eight years. I mean, it's just, uh, how do you go out on, on the streets? How do you enjoy yourself and have any kind of normal life when, when your father is, is Donald Trump? But and, and you're still, you know, you're still with him. You haven't, you haven't... Uh, repudiated him, right? You, you're, you're part of the Trump family, the pr Trump dynasty, the Trump lie. Um, you know, I, I, feel, I feel sad for them. I know, but half the country loves them. And they want to pit that half of the country against the other half. And why we would go to war over a guy like this, he's like the Wizard of Oz at this point. So we just have to Pull the curtain back. <laughs> well, the, the curtain is yeah. getting pulled back. Yeah, yeah. And we'll find out if he comes up with this appeal bond. Let's hope it's not half the country, Craig. No, I don't think it's half of the half of the country. Yes. And right. Nikki Haley right. has started to expose him, and he's just deteriorating really pretty fast. That get-up move in the court that cost him many millions of dollars, that's an old man entitled move. And... uh I can't believe that anybody would hand the reins back to him. It's just yeah. sort of startling to me. I mean, these things are happening in court, but is he deteriorating? In some ways, I think he's gaining momentum. And speaking of that, I mean, just the pressures being accused of doing something like that, wouldn't right. that devastate you? Right, just a normal person. A normal person. Right. I mean, the pressures of litigation are immense, especially when you are one of the parties. And... I've started tweeting about this, and uh, and that's Bibi Netanyahu and Israel. We've given it a lot of time since October 7th, but by Passover, 
I want him out of office on the theory that you can't lead a great country and face all these litigations at the same time. You can't be indicted in multiple cases and have your full attention on a country in crisis. Let's let's get it together and get somebody else in charge. Well, is that too much, Dad? No, but stronger argument for for you know Netanyahu being ousted is just the way he's continuing you know the the role that that he is now. Um, you know, unwilling to even conceive of some kind of diplomatic solution, any mention of uh, a Palestinian, you know, a, a, the, the two-state solution still not coming out of his lips. I mean, all it's going to do is perpetuate a war that really can't be won. I right, mean, but it keeps him out of jail. That's well, my point. You can't elect throw, somebody with ulterior they motives. To, they have to throw him out. Nothing can happen as long it's, as he's... It's the Trump thing, too. Can't we find somebody who isn't charged with everything? Did you see that debate in the fourth CD? John Walsh and I talked about it a little bit. Lauren Boebert has gone there, who's been arrested, and most of them raised their hand, and they start laughing about it, pumping their fist. I've been arrested. You've been arrested. It's like a, a badge of honor in a sick way in MAGA world. Right. Anyway, Troubadour. You don't believe in arrests. You don't believe in jailing. You believe in something more primitive. It's called <laughs> Tarred and Feathered. I love this song. We're going to hear this song. Then we're going to hear from John Walsh, former U.S. attorney for all of Colorado. Now he wants to be Denver DA. He's in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Please tell friends, subscribe, five stars. Really appreciate that. Thank you for listening. Tarred and Feathered. Thank you, Troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. Hey there, mister. You promised my daughter a position in your company. Just a summer job, you see. She counted on that She counted on you But you never get back What she's supposed to do
Hey there, mister When you look in the mirror Tell me what you see now Who you want to be now You think the truth is for fools And your words are cruel Didn't your mother ever teach you There's a golden rule Do unto others now Todd and feathered That's how I'd like to see you Todd and feathered You know I wouldn't wanna be you Cause we paint you in tar Roll you in feathers Chicken feathers You be running around Making clucking sounds Wrecking for a seed In the hard, hard ground It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Gosh, what an honor to have him in my home studio. My dogs love him already. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, John Walsh, who might be the next Denver DA, but forget that, you already were the U.S. Attorney for Colorado. Jobs don't get much bigger than that. Hi, John. Hey, Craig. Thanks for having me. I'm really honored, and uh, you are a local guy. Tell everybody where you went to middle school and high school. So uh, I went to West Middle School and then Cherry Creek High School back in the day. And then you went out of state for your college? Absolutely. I, I thought I was going to be either a doctor or an engineer, so it, the 
first year I was at Rensselaer Polytechnic in upstate New York, and then uh, realized that my calling might take me towards the law, and I ended up transferred over to Williams College. See, I want my first year to be a basketball player, and it took me one year to realize that wasn't going to happen. I'm more likely going to be a lawyer, but I returned to Colorado. It's the only year I ever spent away from there. And people said, when I was in East Orange, New Jersey, Upsala College, they said, you're from Denver, Colorado? What are you doing out here? <laughs> you probably got some of that, right? And, totally, and totally. By, but by the end of my first year, I said, what am I doing out here? And I returned to Colorado. It took you longer, though, right? It took a, it took longer, but I knew uh, that I was going to come back west after college. I, you know, a lot of great things about the East Coast, but that was not where I wanted to be. And so I, uh, I ended up going to law school out in California at Stanford. Um, but every summer was coming back to Denver. Never lost that connection, and it kept me kept me going. And that was your desire to be Denverite. It it always. My wife and I were in Los Angeles for a few years after, right after law school, but we always knew that we were coming back. This was it was never going to be. Why? A what is it with you in Denver? Well, I, I imagine it's like you in Denver. It's it's a city that's always really caught my imagination because it's a big city. It's like the biggest city for a thousand miles in any direction. It has everything about that at the foot of these mountains in a sense of community and a sense of possibility, right? A sense that you can you can make your own way. Right. I'm thinking I am your ever so slight elder. So I grew up here. So I've known Denver a lot longer. Plus, like the guy over my shoulder, JFK, I was in second grade at Ellis Elementary in Denver when he got assassinated. You were fortunately too Young Deben, I was only I was only two. I was right. only two when that happened. Yeah, that's so sort of a blessing. That. I bet your parents said, "Boy, I'm glad, John." We not. It's like when nine eleven happened. I was glad my oldest. I didn't have to explain it. He was too young. Yeah, I do remember Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King uh, a few years later, and that that's that's hard stuff to forget. Right. That's probably when you were in the early parts of elementary school. Exactly. It really was traumatizing, don't you think? Completely, completely. And and 1968 was a, was a really rough year all the way around. You have been to our nation's capital. You've been on the East Coast, the West Coast. I've heard of Stanford Law School. I heard it's pretty good, right up there with CU Law. But uh, you worked for a guy, Jay Skelly Wright. Who was that guy? Didn't he have a connection to JFK? So uh, Jay Skelly Wright was a federal court of appeals judge when I worked for him in D.C., but he was originally New Orleans guy, and he had been, he was the district court judge, the trial court at the federal level, who uh, desegregated the New Orleans schools. And JFK appointed him to the, the D.C. Court of Appeals, the D.C. Circuit, um, in part because it was a rough go to live in New Orleans and be the one who had desegregated those schools. And it was a really a profile and courage uh, that Skelly Wright did that. And that was the book by Kennedy, who was a hero. What was it? The PT-109? Is that what it was? Yeah, it was PT-109. Yeah. Right. But your guy, Skelly Wright, he was a World War II greatest generation guy. I think Coast Guard. A absolutely. Absolutely. And and a remarkable man in, in so many different ways. So how did you get hooked up with him? You know, it's interesting. The uh, There were some former clerks 
who were teaching at Stanford Law School, who uh, former clerks of his, who uh, you know would you know get to know students and make recommendations to Judge Wright, and and somehow I got on that list. I felt like a mistake at the time, but it was, <laughs> but somehow that happened anyway. What was that experience like for you? You know, it was, a, it, this was 1986, uh, 1987, and it was a pretty extraordinary time because that court, sometimes the, you know, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit gets described as sort of the second highest court in the land because so many of those judges go on to the Supreme Court. And so, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was there uh, while I was there. Um, and uh, one of my co-clerks that year who was judging, who was clerking for Judge Abner Mikva was a young, brilliant lawyer named uh, Elena Kagan. <laughs> so uh, that was it was a heady experience all the way around. Um, but it was also a sobering experience because D.C. is D.C. And if you're from other parts of the country, you realize sometimes D.C. can be a little separate from, from the reality the rest of the country experiences. And I, I have never lived there. Yeah. And you picked up your bags and moved there for a year? For a year, yep. And... I imagine you had some experiences in the Capitol while you went on to be U.S. attorney. I bet you've been there many times. You got confirmed there, right? Correct, correct. And have testified in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee and done a lot of work over the years back and forth to D.C. But it's and and there are great things at at its finest moments that D.C. can do. But it's it's good to come back to Colorado every time. Back in the day, I got invited to the White House. This was July, late July of 2017. It was Salem Day at the White House, and they wanted capitalists me to do an afternoon show there. They said, are you interested? Well, I, you know, tell me what the benefits are. Well, they said, would you like to go to Washington and try it out? Okay, I'll do that. And not only did we go to the White House and broadcast, Trump was away doing something, thank goodness, but... The next day at the Capitol, they put on a big party with all the big executives, and Mitch McConnell was there, and Kevin McCarthy was there, and it was the healthcare fight where they got really involved, and I, I just, and I had my son with me. I took Sam, who was 15. We had the greatest trip of our life, and we spent a whole day at the Capitol, and I just loved it. And so that's just my tiny story about the Capitol. You've had so many great experiences, but I'm getting to January 6th and what happened at that building. And for a guy like you, what did it do inside of John Walsh? Well, let me, let me tell you a story that in some ways it captures how I feel about what D.C. at its best is. So while I was U.S. attorney, you know, I was there for a conference during my kids' spring break. And so my wife and all three of their kids came out and they were just like, okay, we'll be in DC while you're doing this conference. And so we all stayed there. And one of the things that made me so proud of my kids, you know, they're in elementary school, middle school, and they're like, we have to go see the Constitution. We want to go to the National Archives. And there was a big long line. It's like, it's kind of cold. We don't have to say. And they're like, no, we are going to see the Constitution. Nice. And we went in and we looked at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. And it just reminded me of what those documents, the ideals that they that they can embody. Not that we've acted on them perfectly by any means over these last 240 years, but but that's something that they understood even at that age. 
And that made me realize how important it is that we keep that we keep that aspiration, right? These are these things, documents don't execute themselves. They have to be acted upon by human beings. And so what happened on January 6th, to go to your question, was so I I just couldn't even believe it was happening. And when those first stories started to come in that people had gotten into the Capitol, I assumed it was like one or two people. And then when I was able to get to a computer and see what was really going on, it 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 floored me. And to this day, it's impossible. It's just so difficult to believe it actually happened. And you are involved in the run up. You're an amazing lawyer. And let's talk about your law from Wilmer Hale, because you got involved in some big lie litigation, and you're an American hero in that regard. But I want to hear about Wilmer Hale. Tell everybody. It's history, how big you guys are, how long you've been affiliated, and what's it like to have a big law firm these days? So Ken Salazar, our, our former senator and uh, interior secretary, interior secretary um, when I, the, towards the end of the Obama administration, asked me if I'd think of going over to the new Denver office of Wilmer Hale. And uh, you know, I thought hard about it and ultimately thought, because the firm really embodied the kind of public service that Ken Salazar is about, that I, that's the kind of place that made sense for me to go. And I had a chance to work there with some really tremendous lawyers and tremendous, you know, public servants. It's something that Wilmer Hill really prides itself on. And, you know, people like Seth Waxman, who is former Solicitor General of the United States, who really, and Jamie Gorelick, former Deputy Attorney General of the United States, among many others, uh, Pre Pereira is there now, and you know there's really an ethos of the legal profession as a profession that represents private clients, but really is always concerned about ensuring the rule of law, ensuring the Constitution um, actually actually is a real living document. And I was excited to go there, and I have to tell you uh, the quality of the legal work there, and you know even at this point in my in my career, being there for you know, you know, almost seven years, I felt like I was learning every day uh, because of the quality of the work that was getting done. And also had the opportunity, and I think you were hinting at this, Craig, to get to get involved in some crucially important public matters that needed to be fought. And in 2020, we were very involved in the post-election litigation that that uh, that came out of uh, all of the Trump side attacks on the election. Thank God. Thank God for great lawyers on the side of truth and justice. And did you work with Mark Elias and the whole consortium of attorneys? What was the flow and how is it decided at a big law firm like Wilmer Hale, we're going to dive in and do you get paid for this? Well, there was a there were a before the election there was a big group of lawyers all across the country who were acting in vol, purely volunteer uh, capacity and uh, but once the election litigation started to go um, because of the way campaign finance rules work when we were coming in and doing work directly for the Biden campaign we had to be paid yeah otherwise yeah. it's a gift yes exactly and when the firm entered an appearance so to speak in court that all of that had to be had to be done. Wow, what a challenge. Now, I'm kind of skipping by your, uh, well, let's not skip by anything. This is going to be the definitive John Walsh interview, and it ends with him 
running for Denver DA, a job I saw a long time ago. I was chief deputy in that office, and I wear it as a badge of honor. Love the Denver DA's office. Want to see it in good hands, and that's why I'm going to interview all the candidates. But I've known John for a while, and just let's do go back. Let me test your history of the Denver DA's office, uh-huh. okay? Okay, there we go. All right. Now, I got hired by Dale Tooley, who was great. Do you know much about Dale Tully? Well, you have your son. His son, Pat, is endorsing you. Right? And, and lives around the corner from me in Park Hill. Um, and uh, years ago, I read Dale Tooley's book uh, talking about his I'd time. rather be in Denver. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. And uh, so I know I know of him by reputation. I never met Dale Tooley, though. And I don't know who he really beat for DA. I know there was a Republican before that, Mike McKevitt or whatever. But I was just playing basketball What? And I didn't care about those things. But then I got an interview, and really, Brooke Wanneke hired me, a blessed memory, his assistant. And then uh, when he ran for Denver DA, who got the job? Uh, after after Dale? Dale Tilly, right. Uh, 1983, I think. Was it Norm Early? Norm Early. And yeah. who, were, who were the other two people he was competing with? Oh boy! You, now you got me. Now you got me. I, I, the I don't late know. Judge Dick Spriggs, who is a chief deputy, and a young female deputy or a chief deputy, Beth McCann. Wow! Wow! And Dick Lamb chose Normal, and he became my boss. And then he decided he wanted to be mayor. And then it was kind of the race was on for who would succeed him. And Roy Romer was going to make the choice. And who did he select? Bill Ritter. And who was Roy Romer's uh, chief of staff and the guy who helped make the pick? Uh, you've got me on that one. Ken Salazar. It was Ken at that point. All Ken, right. right. <laughs> and, there, and Beth McCann was in the running. They played Andy Lowy. And I was pissed off enough at being bypassed that I ran against Bill in 1996 as an affiliated candidate. But Bill went on to win and then he became governor after that. Mm-hmm. Is is this going to be a stepping stone for you too? You know, I, my goal is to do this job really well. And I'm mature enough at this point in my career that I'm not thinking stepping stones. I'm thinking about what what can I do to really help this city? All right, I I bet so you, yeah, I bet you're going to get the next part of this history right. Because after Bill Ritter decided he was on to other things, Another contest for who would succeed him, and that's when I became aware of a handsome young man. I think I first saw you on TV, right, covering the Oklahoma City bombing trial? Correct, correct. And there you are competing with Mitch Morrissey, the guy who was in my courtroom when he was a deputy and I was his chief, and there was Beth McCann again and John Walsh. The three of us in 2004. Absolutely. And yeah, Mitch held the job for three terms, and now uh, Beth has held it for two. Correct. And there's you, Mr. Persistence, with big <laughs> jobs in between. But it's quite a history over the decades. And it is. One I've followed closely. And and we've been fortunate because it's it's been an office that has that has attracted a lot of talented people over there. It's just amazing, really. And uh, so many people have served in that office are, you know, scattered around the state and other DAs offices today, doing amazing things. And people like you too. I mean, just all over. Well, Brooke Wanaku just got a great book out. I'm going to feature it on my podcast. But she talks about her children. She treated us 
and, and not a condescending way, but she was our mentor. She taught us how to write, how to be trial lawyers. She said, Craig, you're a big guy. You might stand back a little further from the jury. You need to smile more because they think you're going to punish those juveniles you're prosecuting, you know? And I got mentored. It was such a great team atmosphere. I want to hear about your experience in L.A. as a young U.S. attorney. I imagine it was similar. You're in the late 80s. It's before metal detectors and all that, or maybe they were just coming in. They were just coming in. They were just coming in. And it, I, so I was in L.A. Uh, as an, a line uh, federal prosecutor in the late 80s and early 90s. And I always refer to the, those were sort of the bad old days, right? And it was that was a peak in crime. There was the crack epidemic. There was a lot of violence. Uh, that was, you know, the we had the Rodney King riots that took place during that time. And, and ultimately the O.J. Simpson case. It was a it was a tough go for Los Angeles, but I will tell you that what the experience that I had at the U.S. Attorney's Office, you know, we were thrown right in. They called it Rookie Row. You know, a group of uh, brand new prosecutors came in, trained us up, sent us off into court to try cases. One of the one of the young prosecutors I started with that year in 1987 was a was a man by the name of Adam Schiff. Um, so uh, we. Work together, and after you know, depending depending on the time, you'd be in there just trying, you know, the relatively small but felony cases. Um, they put you in a, a, a group setting called complaints, where every single day the young uh, attorneys were reviewing every case coming in and and discussing with really senior uh, prosecutors. Okay, what's the evidence? Is this enough? What do we need to get? Is this a case we can prosecute? Is this a case we can't? Which was an extraordinary opportunity to learn and to really start to develop the judgment you need. Because, of course, prosecutors have enormous discretion in how they charge and pursue cases. And that was was like a master class in thinking about the evidence, thinking about witnesses, thinking about how, how cases should be pursued and what justice looks like. Right. Great supervisors. Who were your mentors? Was Adam Schiff older than you, younger than you? We were about the same age. I forget the exact. The, and so I we admire were him, by the way. He gets so much shit, but I think he's one of the best orders ever. And on the Ukraine uh, impeachment, number one, he gave some of the most powerful oratory. I would sit in my car and listen yes. just because I didn't want to miss a word. He, he he did an extraordinary job in that impeachment, and he's it, you know he's a brilliant guy, and he does get a lot of uh, he does get a lot of flack, but that's because he's kind of he is a he stays on track. He knows what he believes. He's there to defend the rule of law as he sees it, and he he's relentless about that. And I have nothing but admiration for. Do you what stay he's in done. touch with him? I do, I do. I mean, not as much as I would like in some ways. He was here. A year and a half ago, uh, he has had a book out at the time, and I had dinner with him along with my son and and some other Denver folks. And uh, he's a, uh, but that was the kind of again, it was an experience that I value so much. You're thrown in with you know people trying to do the right thing and the camaraderie, right? Completely, completely. It, it just that sense of working together under very difficult circumstances at time, very long hours a lot of pressure, constantly worrying about, you know, are you doing it right? Because you're still early in your career, right? Right. And, and I just have nothing but respect for, you know, to this day, so many 
you know, new, young, and exper- and even experienced uh, deputy DAs who are doing that work and trying to do the right thing for the public. And- well, we've mentioned three people, Bill Ritter, Beth McCann, Mitch Morrissey, all of whom were my colleagues. And I go to your website, dang it, they all have endorsed you. I mean, all three. And they're different personalities. So congratulations on that. And I think maybe by living there, Pat Tooley, and do you know his brother Keith too? Maybe you can get grandfathered into the Tooley family because it all kind of extends from Dale and Brooke and and Bill Ritter is such a huge part of it. So. Well, yeah, yeah, and and in so many ways, I mean, I'm honored by all of those. And Bill Ritter endorsed you too. He has, yes. he has, and and I think it's because we've all worked together in various contexts in different ways, you know. And uh, while I was U.S. Attorney, we partnered really closely with Mitch Morrissey as Denver DA to try to address some of the violent crime and gun crime issues in Denver. Um, and you know, you build up a, a sense of of confidence in people over time. And, and I'm, I'm really gratified that my contact with them had that effect on them, that they, they know I'm trying to do the right thing as, as they were. You did such a great job. And Barack Obama was so exciting when he came on the scene and you became his U.S. attorney. I got to broadcast that DNC and rooting for the guy. And you recall the argument was made that he was radical. And, you know, he did have that association with Reverend Wright and Bill Ayers, right? And I had to argue it every day on the radio, but the proof is kind of in the pudding now, isn't Mm -hmm. it? I mean, he's a normal guy with a wife and daughters, and he loves America. You know, it's it's all there, but the other side hasn't let that go. No, no. And, you know, the thing about Barack Obama is that, I mean, I just, I, I revere the guy, right? Because he went through eight years of being president and there was never a whiff of scandal about the guy. Nothing. The, he, what you saw is what you got. With I would Barack say, Obama. but for that Eric Holder, what was that uh, gun deal? Uh, correct. The Fast and Furious. Fast matter. and Furious. Yeah, yeah. I didn't like that. Yeah. Because I, I'm totally pro-gun control and to me that set it back. Yeah. I don't know what was going on, but... It set some precedents, but I, I, I too admire the Obama's integrity, mm-hmm. and uh, and and so tell us your behind the scenes stories with Barack Obama. Well, I had um, I interacted with him multiple times. You know, when we had the the Aurora theater shooting in 2012. Um, you know, I I went to the scene of that that morning and and was there with the DA and the AG at the time, who was John Southers then. And uh, um, and soon thereafter, President Obama came out uh, to visit the, the survivors. And I had a chance to talk to him at that point. And again, his manner, you know, he went in to talk to the people, people in the hospital, people, family members. And it was really quite remarkable to see the effect he had on because he's a genuinely empathetic person. It meant so much to them that he was there. You know, uh, later on, uh, when you may recall, there was a bipartisan effort in 2015-2016 to reform some of the the most severe war on drugs federal mandatory minimums, and President Obama was very much behind that. And I had the opportunity, by that time I had been asked to be the, the chair 
of the Attorney General's Advisory Committee of U.S. Attorneys. So it's a smaller group of U.S. attorneys who who work more directly with the department in D.C. And I was asked to be the chair um, of that. Um, and so in that capacity, President uh, Obama and the then chief of the LAPD and I were on a panel um, to discuss the reform bill that was going through and also to discuss how we could make the criminal justice system more fair by ensuring that our reentry programs, ensuring that we get people who have served time, um, get them back into society and not back out committing more crimes. And I have to tell you, that was that was a pretty intimidating panel to sit on with the president of the United States. And what so struck me, Craig, is we got up there and I thought, okay, the president's going to talk about broad policy goals, and uh, the chief and I are going to talk about the details. No, President Obama knew the facts and the statistics and the information about the bill cold. He knew the underlying information. It was really kind of a tour de force that, frankly, uh, I still don't understand a man with that many responsibilities that he was able to master the details of it. He's an interesting guy. And very bright, just like you. And it seems to me coming on the job as a U.S. attorney in L.A. as crack cocaine became prevalent and a lot of violent crime associated with that, you've seen the drug war from so many different perspectives. Absolutely. Where where were we? Did we go astray? Where are we now? And maybe end with fentanyl. Yeah. So that's that's a... That's a big question. And, you know, I will tell you, and I think it's easy for people to forget exactly how much violence there was in the late 80s and early 90s and the level of concern that, you know, not just Los Angeles, Denver had somewhere, you know, there was the summer of violence in 1993 here. There was really a concern. And some of that was driven by drug dealing, turf battles and things of that sort with the, the crack epidemic. Um, and you know there was a really strong reaction to that, and you could make a you could make a really strong argument it was it was an overreaction that too many people ended up incarcerated because of the way the laws work, no question about it. And part of the reason I say that is, you know, fast forward twenty years to the Obama administration, and the president uh, had his uh, clemency project and asked us all in the U.S. Attorney's offices to take a look at nonviolent drug convictions to assess whether or not some of those penalties, some of those sentences were simply too long. And again, emphasis on nonviolent. And when we bet, went back to look at those cases, you know, really small amounts of drugs were resulting in 20, 30, 40 year sentences. And that was too much when there was no violence involved. Um, and so, you know, I've seen it from both sides. We need to be firm. We need to impose consequences when, you know, people break the law and particularly if there's violence. But we also need to temper that with a realistic assessment of how much of a risk a particular person actually poses. Well, let me ask you this right now, because you've held that big job, U.S. Attorney, Colorado. But I submit that you're running for a bigger job, more important, and maybe it's just the arrogance of my own background. But we looked at you guys in the U.S. Attorney's Office, like Ken Buck, they didn't try the level of cases, the volume of cases we did. Maybe they were more complicated, but we dealt with murderers, rapists, the knife and gun club, what you're about to take on. We had a responsibility to keep the great city of Denver safe. 
And the Denver DA doesn't have a boss other than the people, represent the people of the state of Colorado. As great a man as Barack Obama was, he was kind of your boss, right? Absolutely. So, so which is a bigger job, do you think? So I will tell you, people ask me this question. It's like, well, you were U.S. attorney for the whole state of Colorado. Why do you want to be the DA for Denver? And what I tell them is because this is where the problem is. This is where we need to address the public safety issues that are affecting the entire metro area, right? Because what happens in Denver influences everything goes around in all the metro counties and actually influences everything goes on in the state. So I, I this is a job that I feel particularly right now is the most important public safety job in the state of Colorado. And that's looking at this, this is a city I love so much it's hard to see us struggle with public safety. And and I think we all realize we are struggling a bit. And we need to come at that with energy and vigor and some firmness, but also with a firm sense of making the criminal justice system fair. Because when those two things come together, you're protecting public safety, but you're working to improve the way criminal justice works. That's when you have justice at the heart of it. And that's really why I wanted to get into this job. I care about the city. We can make progress on all these things. You know, you and I have been you know, lawyers and dealing with public safety long enough to see that there there are ups and downs in the way crime goes. We've been at a high point in crime. We can turn that around. And that's that's why I'm in this work. And I so it I guess that's a long-winded way of saying I agree with you. This is the yes. Denver DA's office is so important right and, now. And there might be some guys from suburban DA's offices who are disputing it, but come on. The Denver DA is the leader when it comes to prosecutors in Colorado. That's my judgment, and uh, smart people used to say that. Bill Wise, who was assistant DA for Alex Hunter for a long time, he was married to Diane Balkan, and he would say that to me. He says, you know, the Denver DA, that's the leader of this state, you know? And we had an arrogance about a swagger in the Denver DA's office. How are you gonna get great people to work there if you're so fortunate as to be elected? Well, I, I think it's always important to set a leadership tone in any institution that where people know that the leader, the person at the top, really has in mind being a servant to what the institution is about. So when I was U.S. attorney, I told the assistant U.S. attorneys that my job was to do everything possible to get them the resources, create the environment, give them the training, give them the support they needed to make their job easier, and enable them to do what they were set they were asked to do on behalf of the public. That's what has to happen in the in the Denver DA's office, and the kind of a leadership approach I would bring is to do that. It is about getting the job done for the people of the city and county of Denver and for the state of Colorado, and the the top person in the job has to create that environment. My experience has been that when people understand that's really what you're about, that they like working for you and working with you. I don't even know how it works on the federal side. For somebody to be a baby U.S. attorney, do they get hired by you or do they go through DOJ? Uh, they get hired by the U.S. attorney. So ultimately, it's the decision of the local office. Uh, who so how many prosecutors have you hired? Uh, dozens, dozens. Nice. Uh, what are yeah. you looking for when you're? There are lawyers out there listening. What do you want in a lawyer? Do you want somebody competitive? Do you want somebody? I don't know. You tell me the qualities you're looking for. 
In a, in a prosecutor, I think it is so important that you have someone who is dedicated to doing justice and has a broad sense of taking into account all angles of a case and understanding what really matters. It's, you're, you're an advocate, of course, on behalf of the public. But being an advocate on behalf of the public in this role means making the right decisions and the just decisions. And sometimes that means, sometimes the most important decisions a prosecutor makes are the cases that you don't prosecute. And you've got to be able to have that state of mind to do that. And so that's something that's in the top of the list. But we also need people who are smart, really smart, really motivated, and and frankly, just excited about the prospect of of being in there and being an advocate in the in the court in front of juries and in front of judges. Right. Somebody has to have the courage to speak their mind. Not everybody can do that. No, no. A lot of lawyers don't have that capacity. Do you fancy yourself really good at evaluating who's going to be a good prosecutor? How do you size it up? You know, my experience, the longer I go, the, the more uh, humility I bring to assessing it. And so I think it's really important you have a process. You have people that you trust who are also uh, taking a look at the candidates. And they may spot things that you miss. And at the end of the day, though, it's got to be the top, the head of the office who makes the decision. Okay, this is the person who who is the sort of person that we need and is going to be that dedicated public servant and someone who's dedicated to justice to do the job. Right. It's kind of like putting together a basketball team. And you want them to be competitive but not foul out. Exactly. Right? You exactly. don't want any Draymond Greens on your team, but you want a Nikola Jokic. Yeah. yeah. And how do you do it? Do you recruit like Notre Dame or CU? I mean, do you go around, do you put out the word at Stanford Law? We would sure like a deputy in Denver. What do you do? I think the broader the net, the better. And that actually gets at a really important point that I feel strongly about, and that is you know, we need to make sure that we're doing everything possible to get that, those people with a diversity of backgrounds, right? We have a very diverse city, Denver, Colorado, and we need to be sure that we're hiring great, absolutely top-notch people who are of every background. And I, that's something that I think we have a lot more work to do. And that means, to your point, it means putting the word out high and low uh, everywhere um, we're hiring. And this is a wonderful opportunity if you're a, a, a brand new lawyer and want to get trial experience and want that experience of serving the public. And you can make a decent living. Back in Absolutely. the day, I made you know a decent, you know not what 17th Street lawyers were making, but I had a chief deputy car. That's pretty cool. And you'll get a car, right? There's a fleet. Have you checked all that out? What are the perks? You know, I actually haven't checked out the perks. You're going to get a car. <laughs> You're going to get a car. Before we get on to your hero role in Michigan, and we do need to tell that story, I just want you to drop some other famous names. Now, Preet Bharara, I imagine you know him pretty well. Pretty well. Pretty well. We worked together. He was U.S. attorney in, in the Southern District of New York while I was U.S. attorney here. And has made your claim to fame now? Yeah, but uh, he's he's uh, he also has a podcast. A podcast, <laughs> right? And Andy McCabe, did you ever meet him? Because he does great podcast. He was James Comey's second. I have met him. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't spent much time with his podcast, but I know he's done a lot. Oh, so. you should. Jack and, Allison yeah. Gill, his mm -hmm. partner, was uh, episode one seventy eight, I believe, and he's doing tremendous work and what a sense of humor. 
And Pete Strzok, another guy. Did you ever meet him? The I did FBI not meet. Guy. I did not meet him. What about what about all the great commentators now with U.S. Attorney after their name? You know, I I was lucky enough to right when I got my ass kicked by Bill Ritter. The next month, Sean Benet got killed, and people came to me for quotes. And then because I'd been a former prosecutor of violent crimes, I was suddenly in the spotlight. Now everybody's looking for former U.S. attorneys because of Jack Smith and all the actions in the federal courts. Absolutely. And so like Barbara McQuaid and Joyce, Joyce Vance. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know these people, they're, don't you? And they're close friends, actually. So uh, And just tremendous, tremendous public-spirited people who want to want to see the country head in the right direction. Yes, and now they have a podcast, Sisters in Law, and then Andrew Wiseman's become a big star. Chuck Rosenberg as Chuck well. Chuck Rosenberg, what a solid guy he is yeah, too. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a it's quite a group of folks, and uh, and I think you mentioned earlier uh, when you were doing commentary back in the nineties. Uh, interacting with Lori Levinson, who yes. had been an assistant U.S. attorney in L.A., who worked on the O.J. Simpson commentary with you. Right. I, I consider us the OGs, the original <laughs> gangsters of legal analysts, because yeah. O.J. was kind of the birth of that with the yeah. televised trial and stations were paying. And that's good segue to you finally making your way back to Denver. And let me tell you, folks, we do kind of a radio format here, but you can look at the pictures of John Walsh. He's Hollywood handsome. Honestly, why aren't you on MSNBC or CNN? Did you think about that? Because you got the baritone voice. You got it all, man. You stay in shape. How do you do that, too? Work the, out. The uh, You know, I thought about it, but, you know, I actually love the practice of law, and I love being a practicing lawyer and 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 putting so much of my attention. I know you do too, because you do that in addition to this podcast. Yes. And the, so that that influenced me a lot. And then, but if you go back to when you think about the 90s and, and legal commentary, you know, OJ Simpson, you know, when I, I was still in Los Angeles when that was happening in my office, looked out over the sort of multi-tiered uh, scaffolding with all the different uh, TV shows, we called it OJ City, um, which was the level of media attention. And then, you know, just a couple of years later, when the Oklahoma City bombing case came here to Colorado, we we sort of saw that replicated, right? And yes. so the federal courthouse, Judge Mach, the the chief judge at that time here in Colorado for the U.S. District Court, got assigned the case and then brought it here, change of venue from Oklahoma. And then we saw two and a half years of that same sort of intense national media focus here in Denver at the federal courthouse here in Denver. Right. And David Gregory came out to cover it, met Beth Wilkinson. They got married. Yep. And Beth Wilkinson, one of the uh, one of the important prosecutors in both those cases, and, right? Uh, uh, and has gone on to just a stellar trial court career in private practice. And too. her supervisor was a guy named Merrick Garland. Do Correct. you know our Attorney General? I've met him several times. I, I didn't know him well, certainly back in the day. And Jamie Gorelick, who at Wilmer Hale was also heavily involved, he uh, he had Jamie as his essentially a. Right hand person in those days. So Jamie Gorella calls on the nine eleven commission. Yeah, absolutely. Let me let me let me flip that around. Jamie Gorella had uh, Merrick Garland as her right hand right. person. Yeah. So it 
it, you know, kind of an amazing thing. And you'll remember that after O.J. Simpson, there was there was almost like a crisis in confidence in the way our criminal justice system worked. And the Oklahoma City, the McVeigh and Nichols trials, you know, the press was talking about them as sort of a, a test to see whether or not you know, the the U.S. criminal justice system could work. Uh, and so that was part of the reason there was so much attention after such a horrific attack in Oklahoma City that killed hundreds of people. Yes. And then uh, McVeigh actually was executed, which was fairly remarkable. Nichols got spared by one lady. I remember that press conference. She justified that. You, you might have been there, too. So, yeah, the big things that have happened, my views on capital punishment have evolved, and I'm used to talking to prospective DAs and going through the death penalty, but we don't have to do that anymore. It's done, although there was an execution in a, a southern state. Alabama, yeah, yeah. just as And, and mm-hmm. I, I've had to rethink it because I'm rethinking America and totalitarianism and authoritarians. And while you're talking about getting the powerful job of Denver DA, I don't think you're an authoritarian, but I think there are authoritarians out there and it it, it bothers me they have that power to kill people. And that was the subject of the argument in front of your old DC circuit. Mm-hmm. And we're all waiting for the immunity ruling. And the judge Pan said, what does this mean? that the president can have SEAL Team 6 kill a political opponent? And he said, well, he'd be impeached and removed, so then he could, or whatever. But right. the answer was essentially yes. yes. What kind of America is that, and where is that ruling? Yeah, I, uh, I'm i surprised it hasn't come more quickly, particularly after that oral argument, where it seemed as if the, the panel had a strong opinion about where things were going. I'm, I, I'm sure they're taking it very seriously and and spending time to make sure that they're putting together an opinion that's, that's going to fully address the issue. Right. And they might need to be, appease a third justice who doesn't want to sign it with this or that. And they have to calculate what the U.S. Supreme Court would do. But you talk about a crisis in confidence. Some people would say it's in the big cities. You're going to take on that job. You talked about it in the courts after OJ, but my biggest crisis in confidence is in the U.S. Supreme Court. And I always admired those guys. I thought, generally speaking, they're trying to get to the right result. Now I'm worried about corruption. I'm worried about too much politics. Do you worry about that? I... (laughs) I wish I could say I don't worry about it, but in the last couple of years, there, there have been events that have made it much more uh, difficult to ignore. And uh, I, I'm hopeful that we're going to see, I mean, the Supreme Court has over time, individual justices have had a way of, of counterbalancing forces. Um, you saw that with, you know, Justice Blackman back in the day or Justice Sutter. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, uh, we've got, and I'm hopeful that we will see the court uh, uh, do the right thing. Well, give us behind the scenes. You probably know these guys. You already mentioned Elena Kagan. I think she's going to vote the right way. But what about Neil Gorsuch? Have you met him? Do you know him? I, I know uh, Justice Gorsuch from his time on the Tenth Circuit. But I can't say that I've got some inside scoop on on any of this, I, to be really direct. I used to think that you know Republicans and Democrats just different jerseys. I've always been caught between the two parties, but now 
it's easy for me. It's MAGA and anti-MAGA. It's pro-democracy or pro-autocracy. And and I'm just startled by people I knew who are attracted to this authoritarianism. And you probably had a great tradition of bipartisanship working in your job. Didn't you work with a lot of Republicans and Democrats? Have Republicans changed as much as I think they have? So we did work, when I was U.S. attorney, the The wonderful thing about Colorado, um, and I think this is still true, the, the wonderful thing about Colorado is it didn't matter whether a DA was a Republican or a Democrat. We were all pulling in the same direction to get to what was good for the public and to protect public safety and do it in a just and constitutional way. I had great confidence, and I frankly never really much thought about whether a particular DA was Republican or Democrat in the course of that. Um, I think that's still the case in Colorado, uh, and I think we have to work hard to make sure it stays that way. Right, and you can be that kind of leader. And I'm just disappointed, and they're mega, take Linda Stanley, please. No, she's in Fremont County, blew that Morphew case. She's a MAGA lady. She's got ethical problems. If you're going to elect people like that MAGA world, it's a problem because a bad DA can do a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah, without without a doubt. And yeah. I, you know, one of the things too that uh, I strongly believe is that the leadership that uh, the DA in an office like Denver, a big office like this, can have can can have a positive effect beyond the immediate Denver city and county boundaries. And and I think that kind of cooperative effort is still possible in Colorado, not with every DA, perhaps, as you're pointing out, but we really have an obligation to try. That's really what our court system is based on, isn't it? A cooperative effort. You know, you and I may go at it in a courtroom, but we have to cooperate on being quiet while the other guy is talking and following the rules. And what I see is a lack of cooperation now and a desire to blow up this system. And you are on the front lines of that because we've had elections throughout our history, but they decided to launch a legal tsunami against the results. And thank God lawyers like you were at the ready. I really admire you. So you, you served out a great term as U.S. attorney, did a lot of Everybody has good things to say about John Walsh. And then you went to work for Wilmer Hale. And I imagine you were having a nice life as a partner. You didn't need this aggravation of a contested election. Tell everybody this story about how your law firm and you in particular put in sacrifices to save America in the wake of the big lie. So uh, after the election in November of 2020, you may remember there was a, a short period of a few days. It wasn't clear which direction the the Trump administration and, and the still President Trump was going to take. But the weekend after the election, it suddenly became clear that there were going to be lawsuits filed, challenging results in the battleground states all over all over the country. So that included, you know, states like Michigan and Arizona, Nevada, you may remember Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. The uh, and Georgia, and our team, led by Seth Waxman, the former Solicitor General, who was working with a broader team of other law firms as well, um, basically 
assigned each of us to to lead efforts in each of those states to work Did with. you have a code name or anything? No, no. <laughs> I mean, what, what's it called, the Waxman team? Or well, you know, he was working with two other former solicitors, and so they they uh, they they really prided themselves on the fact that it was a group of the highest constitutional uh, advocates for the United States of America, former who were doing this. And uh, so another lawyer from Wilmer, Brian Boynton, a partner of mine and I were the leads working in Michigan, which is one, you'll recall, one of the states most actively uh, contested. And we, from around November 8th until the middle of December, six weeks more or less, we uh, were involved in fighting lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit, um, attempting to basically obstruct the certification of the results in in Michigan and that started with a lawsuit filed in the in Detroit to try to prevent the certification of the Detroit largely black voters vote and it was clear that there had not been any significant fraud or if any fraud and yet you know the the Trump side filed just a host of unsupported declarations and affidavits and really able local Michigan council were there on the scene handling the the injunction hearing and succeeded in fighting that back. But that only led to appeals in the Michigan state court that we were involved in. First, a federal lawsuit in the uh, Lansing area, um, the Western District of Michigan. We filed an opposition to that, a dismissal. The other side, the Trump side, immediately dismissed so that the court couldn't throw their lawsuit out and refiled something a few days later in the Eastern District of Michigan, which is Detroit, the so-called Kraken lawsuit that Sidney Powell had been bragging about, which was filed at just a few minutes before midnight on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving with 200 or nearly 200 declarations and affidavits asserting fraud, some of them recycled from other cases. And, you know, it was inspiring to me how many lawyers, both at our firm and other firms, complete, worked completely through the, the Thanksgiving holiday without complaint from early in the morning till late at night to knock down and disprove each one of those declarations. Part of the reason that this, this was so stressful is we knew we would win. We knew that these allegations were false. We knew that the legal arguments being presented were invalid. But we had to win really fast because the way our electoral college system works, there is a very short time frame for certification of state uh, results and uh, the sending of electors to the electoral college. So essentially, there were a series of deadlines that we had to make sure got met, which meant that a lawsuit got filed. We needed the court to act on it and to dismiss it in favor of the actual results in a matter of days. God, and time is of the essence. There was so much Michigas in Michigan. I mean, there was Antrim County where they tried to break into Dominion machines. They put the strong arm on a couple of uh, election officials to reverse their vote. The tapes just came out on that. They made up those lies about uh, the uh, blocked election counting at the, the Wayne County thing, but there was also this specter of violence, right? Yes. The uh, governor had been threatened, and 
Michigan militia. And for those of us who remember McVeigh, we remember how it came out of Michigan, right? Absolutely. The Michigan militia. Just, I haven't spent time in Michigan, but it seems a little different there. Did you have to go to Michigan? Were you doing all this from Denver? How did that work? We were doing this for, uh, from Denver for the most part because so much of this was just on the filed papers right. from day to day. You, and and we were still in the middle of the pandemic. You remember this right. is November and December of 2020. Um, the uh, I'll tell you something, and I, I I need to call this out. The way the the Michigan has a kind of unique election certification procedure. They have the boards of canvassers, they call it, both at the county level and at the state level, and their job is to certify the election result at the county level and and at the state. But under Michigan law, there there are four members on these on these boards. Two must be Democrats, two must be Republicans, and a majority has to vote to certify. So what that meant is that if the two Republican uh, members of those boards did not, and it was a standoff, the election results would not be certified. And there was enormous pressure, to your point, placed on those Republican members of the boards. These are not high-profile boards, right? It's, they're sort of you know, the, the details of the machinery of, election, uh, of the election system. And enormous pressure was brought, brought on them not to certify. And to the credit of both the Detroit uh, area uh, Republicans, but even more importantly, one particularly courageous member, a Republican member of the state board, and I'm going to call him out by name because he deserves our thanks, uh, a young lawyer actually um, who was counsel to the Republican legislature at the time. His name is Aaron Van Langeveld. And under enormous pressure, he recognized that his duty as a member of that board was to certify the election. It wasn't his job to investigate whatever allegations of fraud. That was something for the courts. He understood it was his job. And despite the extraordinary pressure and at real political risk and maybe even physical risk to himself, he voted to certify those, those, uh, those results. Had he not done that, then the entire Michigan uh, vote would have been in peril. Um, because of the, how short a time frame it was to certify to get the election. He was the Mike Pence of Michigan. He was, he was. And he, he you know, uh, took some consequences politically for doing that. And he's someone, that's why I mentioned him by name. He is a, a patriot and did a, a remarkable thing. And to give you a sense of how much pressure there was, uh, you may remember that just a few days before that vote was to take place, uh, then President Trump called to D.C. the Republican Speaker of the House of Michigan and the Republican Majority Leader of the Senate of Michigan to talk about the election results, because the idea was in, in the Trump camp that if there wasn't a certification, that the state legislature could direct the result on its own. And the pressure that the president we we were very concerned about that. We of course knew about this. We were very concerned that he would pressure them to take control of the election and certify the results, even though the margin in favor of uh, Biden was 150,000 votes. It was not a close. Um, and to the credit as well of those two Republican leaders, they came out of the meeting and said, "We still haven't seen anything 
that shows that there was fraud that would affect the election. So and the strong arm tactics and the other thing going on in Michigan, the fake electors. Did exactly. you know that was happening yes. when you were doing this? Yes. And I mean, so teams of lawyers beat back all these bullshit lawsuits and Sidney Powell got ordered to pay attorney's fees or yeah, she's losing her license. Sanctioned there by the, and the Lynn federal Wood court. And Lynn Wood got involved too. Lynn, there was some controversy. His name was on the pleadings, but he said that that was not with his By consent. Mistake. Yeah. So, and uh, but uh, but ultimately, and I want to call something out that's important. I, I was so honored to have the opportunity to take a, a, a strong role in representing the the Biden campaign and the DNC in that race. But there were so many other lawyers, lawyers in Michigan, lawyers from other firms who were contributing so much to the to the battles there in Michigan, but also all across the country. It took really an army of people who are committed to democracy and the rule of law to make that happen. Here's the problem. The battle is still going on. The big lie continues. Donald Trump is running on it. He says the election is rigged, and Lauren Boebert last night raised her hand and said, yeah, I think the election was rigged. A lot of people who I think the insurrection is ongoing. What, what do we do about it as lawyers? And if you thought about it, I bet you have. Just like Beth McCann, when she got elected, I wrote about it in my last Colorado Sun column. Everybody was there to celebrate uh, seven years ago in January, and Beth said, time out, we've got a problem. Donald Trump got elected. And at the time, I thought, is this appropriate? But now I think it it was. What if, God forbid, Donald Trump wins? You're the Denver DA. I I don't I don't know what happens next. Do you? Uh, I I don't know what happens next, but I know that as Denver DA, the job would be to stay the course to protect the rule of law here in Denver and in the state of Colorado, and 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 that I will go to my dying day doing that. Here we are on a day when Donald Trump walked out of a closing argument in his civil rape trial, his defamation trial. He's already been found to be a rapist, yet he's going to be the nominee of the Republicans. He won New Hampshire. Nikki Haley is barely hanging on. It, it, it's frightening. And we talked about January 6th, and uh, Elise Stefanik, who's a, a House leader uh, since Liz Cheney got deposed, and she went on Meet the Press and said the January 6th federal defendants are hostages. And you've heard the talk, and he's promising pardons for those people. Um, the people who capitulate to Donald Trump, what's going on there? You've studied human nature. You went to Stanford. Why do people like a Ted Cruz or a Tom Cotton, people who went to Ivy League schools, I mean, have you known some of these people where you say, I can't even believe you're going this way? It, it uh, you know, I don't, I don't have an answer for you. I don't. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to see why some people have gone the direction they had. And in many ways, you have to wonder whether they even believe themselves what they're saying, right? And I, I'll just, I'll just note that uh, a couple of days ago, Judge Royce Lamberth in the uh, federal court in D.C. issued an opinion. Uh, on the resentencing of a of a January sixth uh, defendant, in which he very systematically goes through some of those claims about the January sixth defendants being hostages and things of that sort, and and does really a tremendous job as a judge who's presided over many of those of those cases. 
of just saying, look, that's preposterous. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a violent attack on the capital of the United States. And the rule of law requires us to, to ensure that the people are appropriately and fairly prosecuted. So, And I think Bonnie Willis did the right thing in Georgia as a state prosecutor. She'd been a chief deputy and she's got some personal problems now, but I thought that was a righteous prosecution. And I've heard some people say, oh, it's political. Really? I would hope as Denver DA that if Jenna Griswold or Republican Secretary of State got strong-armed in a phone call like that and a fake elector scheme was put together in Colorado, wouldn't you take an interest in that in protecting Denver and Colorado in an election? So, you know, the Denver DA actually has kind of a uniquely important position amongst the Colorado DAs right. because so many of those cases involving most all of them really involving state government are centered here in Denver. And so the jurisdiction over those crimes, if they happen, uh, will be here in Denver. And so the Denver district attorney has to be attentive and, and thoughtful because so many of those government-related cases could could come through that office, so you know, that those are things you have to have in mind uh, in that role. Nowadays, everybody says, "Oh, your prosecution is political, this or that." I wrote a column advocating a perjury charge for Cash Patel. I don't think perjury is used that often. You were a federal prosecutor, but everybody swears to testify to the truth under penalty of perjury. How often is it really enforced, and would that be a priority for you? You know, the, you're right. It's not. You don't see a standalone perjury charge that often. Uh, normally, where it does happen is if there's some some connection to a broader scheme or things of that sort. But you know, it is. It means something to swear an oath uh, when you testify, and you know there are cases in which it would make sense uh, to bring those charges. But I'm not going to comment on any particular. No, case. that's all right. Yeah. Let me ask you this though. The overall corrosive effect of MAGA uh, tearing down our institutions. And I wrote about this in my column, too, and it really bothers me to hear it out of the mouth of not just Trump, but DeSantis, Ted Cruz, Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio. Oh, that's a New York City jury verdict, or that's a Denver jury verdict, or that's L.A. You can't trust it, those verdicts. I mean, what kind of a country are we going to have where verdicts out of a city like Denver aren't respected. Yeah. No, it's a it's a huge problem. You know, you and I spoke at one point about uh, this uh, wonderful book written by Alan Prendergast called Gangbusters. Yes. It was about the the Denver DA Philip Van Size 100 years ago, exactly 100 years ago who fought uh, organized crime schemes but also fought the Ku Klux Klan which was you know, really an ascendancy at the beginning of the 20s here in Colorado, which is hard to imagine. And yet it was true. And the the thing that really struck me about that book, which has many great attributes, is you just get a picture of, of, a, of a DA and people around that DA who were willing to take the heat to make sure that our system works the way it has to and to protect the rule of law and to protect the Constitution. That's the other startling thing, the bigotry involved in MAGA. And uh, what we saw with Derek Chauvin uh, stepping on George Floyd's neck like that, there's more racism than I realized. Like, I grew up with forced desegregation in Denver, and I always said civil rights has lost its spark. Those summer nights were hot. Summer, sure, the problem's gone. Excuse me if I'm not, because I don't think we've really reckoned with it 
all the way, but I've never seen it rise to the surface like this. And that's another bad thing for the criminal justice system, right? If you have bigots judging other people or bigoted prosecutors, it's horrible. And, and we just can't we just can't have that. I mean, one I will say Beth McC- one of the courageous things that Beth McCann has done is she had a study done of decisions made within the DA's office to try to determine whether or not decisions were being having some disparate impact on people of color or based on gender and things of that sort. And it took some courage to do that because, of course, it wasn't clear what the result would be. And the results you know, really pointed to, in a few areas, some disparate as uh, impact, but not intentional. And those are the sorts of things we always have. We have got to ensure that our system uh, provides equal justice to everyone. And to your point, bigotry and prejudice and, and has no place. And we have to root that out everywhere. You know who does have a good place are Republicans who have stood up to mega, like Judge Ludig. And I had on uh, Jason Dunn, your successor as U.S. attorney. Yes. I bet you were proud of him standing up to mega. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he, it, you know, Republic, it, it takes a special kind of courage, like with the Michigan officials that I described earlier, to, to stand up to the people that are supposed to be your friends. You also know Tim Hapey. He's a hero. I want you to try to get him on my show. He was a U.S. attorney. I don't know what district, but he's been heroic on the J6 committee. Uh, and the report, he authenticated it at the Denver trial, star witness to rebut Cash Patel. Yes. Who said, oh, this January 6th committee threw away all the evidence. That's another one of Trump's lies. And it's it's just unbelievable. He got so wacky with it, he put it on Nikki Haley, you know, that Nikki Haley was in yeah. charge of security and I authorized 10,000 troops. It's just perjury. It's just wrong. And he got Cash Patel to say it. But uh, tell me about that guy, Tim Hafey, because I think he's a hero. So t- Tim Hafey was the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Virginia, so the western part of the state of Virginia. And he took on this job as chief counsel, chief investigative uh, counsel and for the January 6th committee. And he threw himself into that job, as you know, and um, fearlessly. Uh, and, uh, you know, we do owe him a huge debt of gratitude for everything that whole team that he put together was able to accomplish. And part of his team was my guest last week, Denver Riggleman, the representative from Western Virginia, who did the data dive. Yeah. Now, you're just uh, you're a seasoned veteran now. You look like you're in your 40s, but I know you're a little older. Are you up to date on all the new crime-fighting tools? Isn't it amazing, the technology, the DNA? Yes. There are crime-fighting tools that were unavailable to us in the 80s, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Absolutely. How exciting is it? It, it's exciting, and it's also really important because, you know, for example, you know, when we talk about gun crime and violent crime in a city like Denver, you know, there are technologies out there where we can identify the guns that are being used, and it's a small number of guns that are responsible for a lot of different incidents, and we can—they leave a fingerprint in the casings that are left behind, and working closely with federal government that has a technology called Nibin, it's possible to trace the guns specifically and figure out who's who is uh, holding those guns identify that small group of people who's actually shooting and investigate and prosecute them it is so important we do that and that we use all of those tools 
to uh, to address those issues, and we can do it in a way that is truly targeted and focused, and gets the people who need to, uh, need to be off the street off the street. All right, let's wrap it with your love of Denver. Uh, the true test of it is where do you raise your kids, right? You raised them here. I know you have a particular love of East High School and a program there. Brag on that. So uh, we've lived in Park Hill for almost 30 years now, and all three of our kids uh, uh, born in Ro- at Rose Hospital, and uh, all three of them are graduates of East High School, which is just a tremendous institution. And uh you know, it, it's hard to see the the some of the violence that that high school has had to suffer in the last few years, um, and it's a school that has for a long time had all sorts of wonderful programs. One that they're very proud of is the Constitutional Scholars uh, Program, which is a national competition about the Constitution. I've coached that for eight years now, and. You know, East has uh, won the national uh, the national competition several times, and it's 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 inspiring to see high school students get so engaged and so committed to what the high, highest ideals of this country are. And that program really brings that out. And that civic education is so important to the future of this country for all the reasons we're talking about, and uh, because it's that kind of understanding and that commitment of young people that will be the firewall against authoritarians in the future. Right. And I love pride in Denver. And the Denver story is a beautiful story, including East High and a dropout, Maurice Rose, who went off to fight in World War One, became a World War II General. hero, mm-hmm. General Rose, uh, highest ranking tank commander killed right at the end of the war. And that's where you had your kids, Rose Hospital. That's where I was born. That's where my kids were born. That's Denver, Yes, Rose Hospital. And you know that a hospital was established to beat the color line, too. It was established so that Jewish doctors could work and black doctors could work. And it broke a lot of barriers in this city. And that's what Denver's been about. I mean, I'm proud of Denver, Colorado. People who put it down... I don't like that. Do you? No, no. This is this is this is home, and it's a place that I came back to um, because I love it so much. Well, I love your accessibility. You've given me so much time. Give your final pitch. Give out your website. How can people help you in this venture? And uh, my God, I, you've got Mitch Morrissey, Beth McCann, Bill Ritter, John Hickenlooper endorsing you. I'm sure. Uh, Senator Salazar, right? Uh, well, I well, don't know he's, if he can... he's an ambassador. He oh, can't, he's an he can't ambassador. get involved. All right. Yes. It's like me. I'm in the media. I yeah. can't get involved either. But uh, holy cow, your website, why don't you give it a shout out? They can see all your many endorsements. It's uh, So it's just walshfordenver.com. And just you can go there and uh, would love to have people's help. And you can reach me through that through that website. And I, I'm, I'm responsive to people when they have questions. You know, to go to your question, what was my final pitch? You know, we, this is such a great city. It's a city that we all love so much. It's a city that's had and still has so much enormous potential, not only to just be a great economic driver, but the kind of city you were just describing, Craig, the kind of city that brings people together, that understands that 
we have a range of communities and that we are all Americans and need to be working together and everyone should have the same opportunity. Those are things I care so much about and I think Denver um, is and can be. But we're having a hard time right now. We have public safety issues. We have higher violent crime than we did 10 years ago. We have a terrible fentanyl and methamphetamine epidemic that is trapping people in really deadly addiction and keeping people on the streets. And we've had, as you know, we've had this wave of property crime and car theft that has really hurt a lot of working families because you know it's Kias and Hyundais that are getting stolen. And a lot of folks can't sustain the financial hit of losing their car and maybe getting it back so damaged that they can't repair it. So we have work to do there. At the same time, and this is really important, and I know you believe this, Craig, the DA's job is to make sure that justice is done. And that means working constantly to make the criminal justice system better and looking for ways to make the system work more effectively for the community and to work in a just way and to employ the power of the government uh, to put people in incarcerated in, in to incarcerate them in the situations where that's necessary, but to find alternatives where it's possible. And that's that's where I'm coming from. This is a city that has so much potential and will turn this around, will turn this around and we'll turn it around that we can all be proud about uh, in a way that we can all be proud about. That's what I'm about. And that's that's why I'm running. Just one last little beep, because illegal immigration puts a strain on the community. And I go back and forth. I want to be welcome in all of that. But right now, I'm furious at the disclosure by Mitt Romney and prominent Republicans that it's just basic that because of Donald Trump, the Congress will offer no solutions to the border fix. Isn't that unconscionable? He's trying to break everything. And, it's, and the ripple effects on Denver and then uh, totalitarians like Governor Abbott want to have a civil war. How's this going to work out? Well, I have I have to say, when you think about it, it, it sounds as if the Republicans and the Democrats arrived at an agreement in, the in Congress, in yes. the Senate, yes. and which is an achievement in itself in this environment, a huge achievement. Because you need 60 votes. It has to be bipartisan. And they finally worked it out. And that, to me, says that there is a solution, maybe an imperfect solution, but there's a solution to be had that will help us deal with this influx of migrants and move us forward as a country. And it is disheartening to see the, the, the former president coming in and blowing that up for reasons that are not in the interest of the United States of America. So we, we have so far to go, but it's another reason why you know, we need, uh, I say this as a Democrat, a partisan Democrat, we need, and, a, and as an American citizen, we need to make sure that the election doesn't, uh, that we don't have a second Donald Trump term. That's why I do this podcast. I mean, it's, uh, it, it's, thank you, Michael Bailey, pays the bills. And uh, I love that part. But I really feel, and let me end on this. I've been a lawyer for 43 years now. Started June 1, 1980 as an intern. So I've dedicated myself to the rule of law and this uh, justice system. I see it under threat right now. And I think the people responsible for standing up are attorneys at law. We all take an oath to uphold the Constitution. Don't you think this is a special time for lawyers to stand up? Uh, I absolutely do. I, and the... 
you know, we as lawyers are officers of the court. You hear that all the time. But we're not just officers of the court. We're really, in a sense, guardians of the constitutional system and of the rule of law. And everything depends on that. All of the all of the things that this country has come to embody that are good come from the fact that we have fought so hard to make sure that that notion that all people are created equal means something and that all people are equal before the law is real and that we have a system that actually works and we need to do everything humanly possible to preserve those things. Right. You got to make it happen. You got to give up your Thanksgiving occasionally. Absolutely. It's time for lawyers to sacrifice because we have to fight. As Ben Franklin said, it's, it's a republic. If you can keep it, we need to keep it. I think there are more of us than there are of them. I think we have momentum. I think like with most criminals that we prosecute, eventually they do so many stupid things that it adds up and juries see it. If only Jack Smith can get this thing going and let the justice system do its thing. We've done a beautiful podcast. I hope you enjoyed it, Absolutely. John Walsh. You're welcome in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. When you're DA, I think you have a great chance. The dynamics are, as I pretty much proved in 1996, you got to be a Democrat. And that Democrat primary election is what? It's in June. It's uh, June 25th. And when you agree that's the big battle, you have to win the primary? That's it. That's is there a Republican or unaffiliated even running? At this point, there isn't. All right. So that's what it's like in Denver, Colorado. John Walsh, quite possibly your next Denver DA. Thank you, John. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. My dogs loved you too. See ya. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. 
If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, what a show. Thank you, John Walsh. What a great guest in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. I have an idea the next time will be when you are Denver DA, and what a big job that is. Troubadour Dave Gunders, he's starting his solo career. Oh, my gosh, he is taking off. I mentioned myself on YouTube. Go to Dave Gunders Music. Just Google that. He has his own website, but I use YouTube. You can see that the guy's got a massive library, tarred and feathered. It's one of his best. I think this was one of our best shows, episode 193. Tell a friend, share, subscribe. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.